Hello and a very warm welcome to this session on resilience and leadership with Kirsten um, and thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Daniel Burke, I'm the chairman and a faculty member at Mailer Campbell and a leadership coach with the Alliance and I'm really delighted to be hosting this session with Kirsten. Uh, Kirsten's a friend and a colleague on the Mailer Campbell faculty and also a coach and leadership expert who, though she sounds and is also American, has spent her adult life working with hundreds of leaders in France, China, Italy, Germany and the UK, as well as the US. The plan for this session is that I'll interview Kirsten for around 45 to 50 minutes, and that will be followed by some time for questions from you all. And as you've probably gathered, you can submit questions using the chat function. So without more ado, I'd like to kick off by Kirsten. Hello, <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, Hi, Daniel, thank you. How are, how are you doing today? Well, like everybody, I'm having a good day. I, um, I suppose like everybody else, we, I have my ups and, ups and downs, but today's good and I'm here with you and lots of friends on this um, webinar, so that's lovely. How yeah. are you? Well, I'm, I'm also how well. How are you, Dan? Uh, I'm, I'm well, thank you. Um, although I, I do think, and we may touch on this later, it, uh, it tends to depend on where I'm focusing. So some of the time when I'm mm. focusing well, it seems like life is actually okay. And then of course, if one's guided by some of the, some of the stuff in the media, then it can be rather a, a different impression. So it, uh, yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So can, exactly can, right. can we dive in then and ask, ask a right. first question, um, which is, you know, as you watch yourself and how your client leaders are responding to the current situation, um, what advice would you give to yourself or indeed to other leaders <laughs> in similar situations? Yeah, um, so it's a great, it's great to say what advice would I give myself because I think it, in this moment, uh, the, we have to give ourselves advice first <laughs> and then others. Um, and I think that that's been my mantra uh, the whole time. Um, uh, and I guess my advice is really it's three questions to ask yourself. Um, the first is, um, where am I um, in relation to this situation? Who am I really in relation to this situation? And, and it's, it's about knowing what you're feeling and thinking uh, about what's actually going on. Um, because if you don't know where you are and how you feel, um, you can't be present. And presence is everything. And I mean, I'll, I'll talk more about, about what I mean by that. But um, so really tuning in to your body, your, your emotions and your thoughts in this moment. Who, who am I? Who am I right now? Um, how present can I be? So it's a kind of check in with yourself. Um, the second question is, about what do I, you know, what has prepared me for this? And, and you know, the, the title of this talk is Resilience and, and Leadership. And I, I think that there's a way of looking at this is, uh, you know, I have everything I've done in my life has prepared me to be in this moment right now. So the second question is, what do I already know that will help me? And um, uh, anybody who knows me knows that I'm very strengths-based in my coaching. And, you know, if you look at yourself, and I'm, this is for me, but also for the leaders and, and clients that I have, you know, what are your strengths? 
remember them because it's really hard to forget them in times of stress. I am my, my coaching supervisor, Carol Kaufman always talks about strengths. We're like Teflon when it comes to our strengths, they slide off. Um, this is the moment to remember them. So for example, I know that mission is one of my top strengths, mission and legacy. Um, weirdly, it all has, those are the consistent ones. So, you know, remembering that really important. And with the leaders I'm working with, you know, what is it that got them where they are today? What gives them joy? What are they passionate about? And also what experience do you have? So again, back to resilience. When have you been in a tough time and survived it? And what was happening that helped you to do that? So I think that's, that's the second um, piece of advice, which is really take an inventory of, of your strengths and what you know about this. And the third question is, and this is the one, you know, this is the challenge to yourself is, who do I want to be? So if this is who I am right now, and it's not always, it's not always the pretty sight, uh, in, in the time of crisis, but who, and I've got these resources, I, I've done the inventory, right? That's what I've got. And I've got people also when I'm doing the inventory who can help me, but it's very much, uh, and this is really going to um, Richard Boyassi's uh, intentional leadership, like who do I want to be? And I think there's something beautiful about that because um, when you think about who you want to be, it gives you hope. You feel more hopeful, like, oh, I could be different to this. I have strengths and experiences, but I, I want to go further, and I can use this as a chance to be something else. Um, another way of thinking about that is, um, you know, what do I want to learn? So if this is where I am, if this is where I want to be, what do I, have, what do I want to learn in between? Mm -hmm. And how do I want to grow? And, and this is, you know, always to, to Carol... Carol Dweck's work of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, you know, looking at this as an opportunity uh, to, to work harder and grow. Hmm. Um, so I think those are the, the three pieces of advice I would give. Check in with yourself where you are, look back on your life and see, you know, what experience you have and, and, and look ahead to, to what you want to be. And, and I guess something really important here is, um, for the, especially for the leaders I'm working with, is it's not enough to just ask yourself. Um, you need to ask some other people because sometimes we don't know how we're behaving. We, we don't, we're not aware, especially in these times, you might be reacting in ways that you're not even noticing. And one example I have of that is a, a bullying case with, with a client I'm working with, and she was actually bullying somebody and she really did not know it. Um, she just didn't know it, but she surrounded, she had a core team of people around her who would tell her the truth. And I think that that's probably my fourth piece of advice is mm. have a core team that tells you that, that is strong enough to tell the truth, but also ask them. Yeah, thank you. No, you actually, you're reminding me, I, I think you may have been there, but a few years ago, we ran a masterclass with some women Olympic athletes, and they were talking about how they approached being in Olympic T rowing teams yeah and one of the things I distinctly remember was this notion of feedback and you know I think feedback is the breakfast of champions was the, the <laughs> yeah. phrase I remember so being really hungry for what you can learn from the situation and, and not just relying on oneself for that insight yeah it's beautiful yeah. at McKinsey when I was at McKinsey for many years we used to say feedback is a gift 
Mm. And, and, but it wasn't always. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in yeah. this case, especially when you have people around you that you trust mm. and who you, you believe have your best interests at heart, um, it's easier to listen. Yeah, yeah, great, yeah. thank you. And that, it links nicely actually to the next question, which is um, when you're thinking about leadership in times of crisis in particular, mm. Um, how can executives practice deliberate calm and, and stay grounded and, and optimistic at times yeah. like this? Yeah. You know, um, deliberate calm, it's a, such a great expression. Deliberate calm is um, the same thing as having a stable core, which if you do any martial arts or, you know, any, any kind of, uh, of spiritual practice, our wisdom traditions, they always talk about this, this core. We all have a, we have a core, but a stable core, I'm going to bring it very much to the, to the real world. Um, uh, Stan, um, uh, Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal, who I had the privilege of, of working with a little bit. He wrote a book called Team of Teams, and he talked about how, um, you know, and this is very applicable to a crisis, how mm. it's not enough to play one sport as a leader or as a team player. You, it's not enough to be a great football team in a time of crisis. You have to play a lot of different sports. So to your, uh, you know, we're on a little sports uh, theme here from the Olympics, but he, he talked about being a, a kind of a, a corporate or a, a leader uh, heptathlete. Um, so one day you're playing football, one day you're playing rugby, another day you're playing basketball um, because you have to react in so many different ways. But, and that's fine. And that's agility, right? I can play mm. all these different sports. But the other part of agility is the stable core. So you go out and you do what you have to do. You play the sport, but you come back to your stable core. So when you ask, what is the how do you have deliberate calm? Um, you come to your stable core. What is the stable core? I, it could be your purpose. It could be your values. It could be the mission that you have. Um, in the case of, in the, case of uh, the army, it was definitely the mission. Um, and I think that that, um, what did I wanna say about that? When you're in doubt, and this is the hardest time, you know, when you're in a crisis and you're out there as a leader, you're, 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 it's very visible if you're in doubt, right? And you have to sometimes put on a, a mask of certainty. And that's okay. And I would never blame any leader. In fact, I applaud it because it's needed. But when you're in doubt, really in doubt, you need to come back to your core and say, what is my purpose? And it gives you that moment of stillness and stability when you can find the answer to what you're supposed to do. So it's a guiding, it's a kind of guiding principle. Um, so that would be the first thing to practice deliberate calm to really know what your core is about, what your purpose is, what your, what your values are, and to come back to them. And I think the, the second one is, is very, um, is super practical. It's notice when stuff is working. This goes to optimism. <laughs> yeah, notice the good stuff. Notice when somebody does a good job, no matter how small. Notice when somebody stays calm. Notice when somebody delivers. Notice when, you know, when you actually do have more cash coming in. Notice when something you've tried or a team has tried works and tell them. So there's something about, you know, gratitude, noticing the good stuff that builds your optimism and builds other, other people's optimism. 
And by the way, neurologically, it is um, lots of very good research shows that it is not possible to be grateful and triggered or anxious and uh, in, in the grip, we might say, uh, at the same time. Mm. So if you can really find things to be grateful for, it, it also helps, helps with that staying centered. Um, the third thing, I always have three things. <laughs> the third thing is uh, to name the reality of, of what's going on. So uh, I had a, I, I'm working with a, a, a team, a top team. It's very, he, the CFO was doing a lot of um, scenarios planning and um, she was laying them out. Uh, some of those scenarios, by the way, <laughs> are already not true. I mean, so we're working in all this uncertainty and um, at the end of the presentation, she said to the team, whatever scenario is of these is going to be the right one, this is bloody difficult. <laughs> this is going to be so difficult. And afterwards, another team member told me, you can't imagine how much better I felt when, when she said that. There was something about just naming it, mm. putting it on the table. It's no longer a secret. It's out in the open. So something difficult. Okay. Right. We, we've named it. We've given it a name. It's not mm. going to make it easier, but it's going to make it easier to deal with because yeah. we all know it. Yeah. I think that's, I, I, I think so. What mm. do you think Matt? Well, I was just wondering, because the first thing you mentioned was that, that you know, the, the, the strong core and the sort of purpose mission values. Mm. Um, and then you talked about the, sort of the, the positive emotion shall we say yeah. through gratitude and then naming it as it is yeah. and it, I, I wonder if there's a, um, another aspect might be just the at the physiological level obviously it often goes hand in hand with sort of meditative practices but breathing and even stuff as basic as is one sleeping oh, yeah. well is one yeah. drinking enough water I mean it can sound Absolutely. pretty um yeah minor but in my experience that makes a huge difference huge yeah, yeah. all of those so i'm doing a lot of breathing with teams now um mm. with very senior teams who i i probably would have waited uh until uh you know we were at an off-site to do breathing together <laughs> now we start every meeting with box breathing which i learned from the military yeah. which is where you breathe in for the count of four hold mm. for the count of four out in um because it works five box breaths mm. calm the system so that's a deliberate calm uh, technique yes. absolutely yeah. right yeah yeah and actually I, um, I as you may recall when we were together working on that client last year that's where i first came across box breathing oh, seeing oh, yeah. you do that and i have shamelessly stolen it um, I'm very and, delighted. And, and used it, <laughs> I stole it. <laughs> used it in subsequent iterations with with that same client. Interestingly, with with mm. in Zoom sessions too now. And and what's striking? And the other thing I've done um, quite often is just a, a minute silence. Yeah. At beautiful. the beginning of sessions, and there's something about when all when all you know hell is breaking around us, as it were. The, the ability to create a space for people where they can they can be present and they can I think the breathing yeah. and the silence marks a marks a shift into a different way of being somehow mm. and you it's know, very easy it's quick yeah. and easy yeah sorry it is quick no 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 it's I love the minute I mm. love the minute and um 
a friend of a good friend of mine and colleague Marty Borison wrote a book called One Minute Meditation, mm. and um, I've worked with him quite a lot. And he does this wonderful thing, which I, I recommend everybody do um, if you're working with a team or, or as a coach or however, when you're working with a group of people, is to give the one minute um, and tell them I've got time. I've got the time for you, so that you hold the minute and they don't have to worry about mm. time. Just take the minute and I've got time for you, which is such a beautiful, um, calming mm. uh, expression uh, of care. Yeah. I've got time for you. Yeah. I-, I wanted to say one other thing on this um, deliberate calm. And I know, I hope it doesn't sound too esoteric, but really being careful about what you're thinking matters. So, you know, if I'm thinking, um, I'm really happy to be working with Daniel um, just before this podcast starts or this webinar starts. Um, it affects my next thought. So my next thought is, ah, this is fun. But if I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, this is why, and uh, what am I doing here? An hour in the middle of the day and all these clients and then, and then this, and then, that's going to affect my next thought too. Yeah. So whatever we think, affects our next thought. So when you talk about going to, when we talk about going to the stable core, that's why that matters so much. So if I remember, um, if, if one of my leaders remembers that their purpose is, is to lead their organization on the adventure of a lifetime, which I have, I have a client who's that's their purpose. Um, when they go back, that's their thought. So the Mm. thought that follows leading this company on the adventure of a lifetime, is a really good one, right? Yeah. In line with who they are. Yeah. So I, I just, does that make sense? Yeah, and in fact, just, just building briefly on that, I think when one's doing these opening routines in sessions, um, you can sort of stack things together. So I, I would, quite often I'd get people to think about something they're grateful for, as, okay. as you suggested. They might even share that. And then you do the moment silence, inviting mm. them to reflect in the minute silence on, on that thing. So you're kind of being slightly yeah. directive about what they should be thinking about. So they're getting yeah. the benefit of the meditative quiet yeah. coupled with the, the gratitude focus. And if every, anyone ever pushes back on this, um, what I say is, um, and I get take this from another teacher of mine, Otto Sharmer at MIT, who talks about slowing down to speed up. Mm. Um, the danger in a crisis in a, in a pandemic situation, and we've seen it with, uh, with governments and we've seen it with uh, all, all over the place. The danger is in, in an effort to be speedy, um, we make mistakes. We make more mistakes than we need to. We're always mm. gonna make mistakes and we have to kind of love and accept that. <laughs> um, but slowing down at the start enables us to speed up later mm. with, with mindfulness and focus and clarity. Yeah. So I love your, I love your stacked up beginning mm. of a meeting. It's practical, but it's a micro change mm. in how people are working. So it helps them with the macro changes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Beautiful. Uh, so, so the next question, if I can move on to that is, is what about the role of empathy and compassion? Mm-hmm. Could you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah. I, I'm going to tell a personal story straight off the bat. So, um, you know, at the start of this crisis, I, um, so my husband is, uh, he was a CEO before and he had a driver. That was many years ago. 
since then, he delights in public transport. And in as many, he is such a nerd about knowing where to go, what bus, and having like five alternative routes. And so at the start of this, before lockdown, I want hasten to add, before lockdown, he was still going to work. And one day he told me he had taken the bus, he'd taken you know, two trains. Uh, and I was like, okay, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I, that's not a good idea. Like people, I've been on the bus, I've been on the tube. People are not being careful. They're coughing, they're sneezing, they're touching their faces. You know, it's not good. I was talking to my son and he's in the US and he is also very nerdy. <laughs> I be surrounded, I'm surrounded by nerdy people. But he was, he was deep in the research on COVID. He was well ahead of his time and he was like, tell Philip to stop. He's got to stop. He, he's, I mean, he was, he was beside himself. So it was like the spectrum. My son who is here, absolutely stay home. Don't let him do this. I'm kind of in the middle, like, you know, take one bus. <laughs> you know? And, and Philip's over here with like, I'm, nothing's going to stop me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going ahead. It's a, it's a question of principle. Everybody has their principles. Me, moderation. My son, like, save people's lives and your own and and philip like nothing's gonna stop us and these are all three people i love <laughs> i mean including myself and we're all at different ends of the spectrum and i saw this playing out everywhere people really disagreeing with each other on what was the right thing to do and so on and i think it was very useful to me to have two people I loved at the opposite end of the spectrum because mm. I could have compassion all, on both ends. And the compassion was, or the understanding at least, of, of their position. And that was the start for me of mm. like, wow, how much does compassion matter? And I think it's starting with recognizing that we're all reacting in our own way. And we have to be compassionate about that. So that's, that's a, a short story on, on the range uh, of reactions, but it's, I think, emblematic of a whole bunch of them. Mm. Um, but there's a big difference, by the way, between empathy and compassion. So empathy, you know, it's, a, it's an ability to recognize um, suffering and to resonate with it. Um, but it's the danger of empathy is that it can lead to a kind of emotional burnout. And you see this in healthcare workers. Um, you see this in people who are in service of others. They, they, they have a kind of empathy burnout. They no longer feel empathy because it's too much for them. And, and there's nothing, nothing feeding them. Compassion, according to many definitions, um, and, the, and I guess the Tibetan Buddhist one is the most extreme, but it recognizes suffering. It, it, we emotionally resonate with it. Um, but we can also see it as universal like everybody suffers, we can tolerate the discomfort of it, and we feel moved to act. So it's, it's linked with action. Hmm. And, and that cycle of, of compassion and recognizing that, that everybody, I mean, of recognizing suffering um, is a very different, has it a very different neurological impact on us. It doesn't lead to burnout. Um, because if you're truly compassionate, it starts with self-compassion which means that you also know uh, the, the limits of what you can do. So like mm. you were saying earlier, do, do I take care of myself? 
am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Am I drinking enough water? Like those basic things of self-care, but also knowing when you can and you cannot act Hmm. on behalf of somebody else. I think that that's, um, it's super important for coaches, for leaders, for healers of all kinds to first lead yourself, right, uh, on this. I'm going to tell one more story about um, the power of uh, compassion and meditation. I did a, a course recently on the neurobiology of compassion um, with um, a scientist, a couple of scientists, and a, a, a Buddhist monk who is mostly in retreat. And what the science is so cool, um, they got these monks who had done, you know, you talk about the 10,000 hours, they had done more than 15,000 hours of meditation. And they had a control group, and they put them in fMRI, you know, enhanced MRI situation, where they inflicted pain on them, and then measured their reaction. Mm -hmm. So what they measured was that so they had the two groups and they told them that they were going to inflict pain on them. That's, that's what the first period of time. And by the way, the, the pain, pain is, is uh, suffering is measured. You can do it by pain. So they poured hot water on, on their arm. That was, that was the pain. So they told them they were going to inflict this pain on them. And then they measured their anxiety by uh, on the fMRI. Why did it go up or down? Um, then they inflicted the pain and they measured their reaction, and then they measured their reaction in the time after. How long did it take to come down from, from, from the pain peak? The monks, when they told them they were having pain, they stayed pretty even. When they inflicted the pain, it went very high, higher than the control group. But when it, in the time after, it came down much faster, and they went mm. down to, to normal. Um, the control group, they told them about the pain and their, and their anxiety raised. And then they experienced the pain, but a little bit less than the monks. And then it took a longer time for them to come off of it. And, you know, there's not a lot of um, money for research uh, with monks and on compassion. But what, so I, I'm going to be careful about what we deduce from it. But what we could see is that the, the years of practicing stillness and practicing specifically compassion meditation had helped them to both experience very intensively, so to be very present to an experience, mm. but also to come back, uh, to come back to, to kind of tranquility, I guess, mm. or to even. Uh, I, I just found that incredibly, <laughs> incredibly interesting. I don't know how that helps us, but um, I guess well, it I, goes to, yeah, go ahead. Well, just, just I think it's, it's fascinating and fantastic um, to hear that. Something about the, um, I don't know if it's Mark Twain or somebody like that, you know, most of the things I was most fearful of in my life, you know, never actually happened. Uh, there's yeah, some, that's, not, that's not quite right but you get the gist it's like it so, though yeah but the, and then that you know the Eckhart Tolle stuff about being yeah. in the present moment and and not worrying about the past or overly much about the future because mm. it's in the present moment that our lives are yeah um, and why not do more to make the present moment right. work and be be um you know satisfactory that's right um, 
but it's and fascinating as well that they're they're how much you know they went higher in the actual pain moment because they were more they were in the moment with the pain yeah. i guess yeah yeah it's, yeah and so, also i think that the other quick thing is about the you know the metaphor of putting on your own oxygen mask before that of yeah. your child mm -hmm. or yeah. elderly relatives looking yeah. after yourself first so that you yeah. can support other people mm. yeah there's something about what you were saying too about the prepper the stillness preparation you know um having a, a stillness practice those fifteen thousand hours mm. that those now we probably can't do fifteen thousand hours of, of meditation but um for sure the leaders i see who are surviving this with grace they mm. have already developed a stillness practice yeah. because you don't just develop stillness in the moment of crisis mm. it's the it's the you know or in the moment of pain um you you develop it as a muscle before before it happens yeah. that doesn't mean that this isn't a good opportunity to start <laughs> your practice <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. And there's a nice question that follows on from this, which is, is how, how can leaders and coaches make sure not to absorb negative and frenetic energy from others, the folk they're working with? Yeah, exactly. That's, that would be my first piece of advice mm. is to have a stillness practice. And by stillness practice, it could be for some people that, you know, that, that their physical exercise gives this to them, mm. um, you know, running or swimming or, but, being able to be quiet with yourself and breathe your one minute but probably a little bit longer mm. any kind of practice that helps you to hear your own thoughts and notice your own thoughts and notice how you are really really um helps you know what's you and what's somebody else mm. so if i'm coaching somebody and they've just been fired and this it's unbelievable that in this the middle of the this crisis, you know, adding insult to injury, so many people are losing their jobs. Um, you're sitting opposite somebody and you begin to feel anxious, right? If you have a stillness practice, first of all, you will, it helps you. I'm not saying it's essential. You could probably, maybe you can notice this without it, but you'll notice that you're feeling anxious. Step one, <laughs> right? <laughs> just, just, oh, I feel anxious. Like that's already huge. So I feel anxious. Then there's a question of like, is this my anxiety or is it hers or his? And if you really have an ability to observe yourself, you will have a strong sense of whether it's theirs or yours. In a crisis situation, this is, becomes doubly difficult because there is fear everywhere now. Everyone is experiencing fear, um, and, and unless they're a psychopath, right now, because it is we are so uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen, and our bodies just keep checking in. Am I in danger? Am I in danger? Am I in danger? And so, having a stillness practice now helps us to know. Okay, some of this fear is me, because it's everyone. We're like we are mammals. You know, we are mammals. We are connected to one another. There is no doubt that my client or, or the world's anxiety is going to affect me. It is because I'm connected to them. Like we're like deer in a field. 
you know, when there's a lion and one deer looks up and gets startled, all of the deer get startled hmm. because we're connected. We are mammals. There's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and there's a lot of good elements of being a mammal. <laughs> but when I'm opposite somebody who's really stressed, um, you know, I first check in. I ask myself, is it hers or is it mine? Um, and before I do anything, before I say anything, before I have any reaction, I really do pause and consider. So I love the Viktor Frankl and everybody on this call, I'm sure, um, uh, leads with this in their mind, which is that, you know, between the stimulus and the response, there's this pause and that in that moment of pause, that's where our freedom is. I've badly paraphrased, but in the pause before we respond, um, that's where, that's where we have the chance to know, you know, what, whether this is us or them. And then we can react. We can say, wow, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, where are you in this? Mm. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. It's kind of like the inner game and the outer game too, isn't it, Daniel? Mm. Like Tim Galway's work. Like if yes. you're going to be a great sportsman, you know, you, you can have all the skills, but if inside, um, if you don't know what's going on inside, mm. it's not going to, you know, it could really get in the way. Yes. And mm. some of the things you said earlier, of course, means that one becomes ever better at noticing what is yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, maybe as a nice contrast to that, um, what, what do you see amongst your clients, businesses, leaders in the world that's giving, giving you hope? Mm. And, and can we be hopeful at a time like this? So hope is essential to resilience. <laughs> I would say um, if, if we remember nothing else from this talk, it's that if we don't have hope, we can't be resilient. Very, very difficult. Um, a lot of things are giving me hope. Uh, the, the leaders I'm working with, I'm very fortunate in, in my clients. I mean, I chose them because I, I think they're great already. Um, or they chose, I always feel like I choose my clients. Of course they choose me, but, um, I think the things that are giving me hope is when I see humor, it's a small thing, but I was in a, I was in a meeting with a team the other day and it was a zoom meeting and somebody, um, had left their, they weren't muted. The CEO's talking, there's this background noise, there's the team, I'm the team coach. And I'm like, oh God, do I say something or, and then I, you know, do I interrupt him in mid flow? And so I did because I felt that this was important. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but somebody has put, is not muted. So there's a lot of background. Could, could, could we all mute? At which point he mutes himself and keeps talking and then bursts out laughing because he finds himself so funny and that I'm like no not you not you right I'm reacting no I don't mean you me mm. um and that was just a small thing it, it and the whole team was lighter after that um because it was silliness in in the middle of a, of a very serious conversation about whether we're gonna have enough cash right for this <laughs> for this company um, so humor is giving me hope that, that somebody can be so centered that they can be humorous about something. Um, 
Another her client I have took a huge risk at the start of this, and it didn't work out. Uh, a huge risk to do something that was very important, but it didn't work out. And what gave me hope was that she um, picked herself up and, and moved on. She admitted it didn't work to her team and her organization. And she said, okay, here's what I've learned from it. What, what else can we learn from it? Um, and I thought, wow, in the middle of all of this. And it was so disappointing, right, that it didn't work. It was so disappointing. Um, I think that has given me hope. The other thing I see happening is that really lots of organizations are trying to put people first. They really are caring about the families and the, the employees, but also the families of the employees. Um, and they are understanding, especially global, uh, global organizations that, you know, India is reacting differently to, you know, South America, to China, to the U S and they are being compassionate about it the impact it's having that gives me hope what what gives you hope well both of those and i think behind the um the humor and i think it's interesting in in the first month i suppose of, of the lockdown and the crisis in that sense the number of very very funny um whatsapp messages oh, yeah. twitters you know <laughs> and little video clips and various yeah. um, people yeah. that got together and made songs, uh, you I know, that. just, just the, the huge creativity that's, that's present and um, just left me, wouldn't it be great if this, this creativity could be harnessed? I mean, it was great to have it harvest, um, harnessed in that way, but yeah. to then beyond the crisis to have it focused um, in the, in the most effective way. Um, yeah. Because, you know, people talk about whatever the new normal will be. Um, but it seems to me, at least, we're going to be in a period of uncertainty for some time. And uh, the ability to be creative and, you know, properly responsive to all that mm. is, is going to be really important. Yeah. I, do, I love all the, the music, too, that people mm. are doing together. One of my friends um, who plays the French horn was, um, she played, and I saw her on the BBC, you know, she was one of the people in that huge orchestra. Mm. Um, playing and um, you know we spotted her twice and we were just over overjoyed I just can't get over that people are doing that mm. that they're contributing like that so much as possible yeah so much as possible also people have changed on a dime they've changed what they're doing they made ventilators when they were making something mm. else or they you know one of my clients made hospitals because they're, you know, they needed to. There were none mm. there where, the, where their employees were. So I just find the ability to change what you're doing so quickly. We always had that ability. Mm. <laughs> like, you know, we've always, every day we can change, mm. but we don't. But we don't. So, you know, I guess what gives me hope is that a lot of people are not wasting a good crisis. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, next one is what makes leadership coaching particularly important now? Mm. Um, I'm going to go back to something I just said about fear being everywhere. Um, and the good news about fear is that it's an emotion of, of, of um, connection. 
So think back about when, when you're a child and when you're afraid, when you're little and you're really afraid, what do you do? You run back to the person who takes care of you, right? It's a, when you're afraid, you go back for connection. Um, and I think uh, above all else, coaching is a, a connection, right, with someone. So uh, there's that, but that fear when it's frozen, right, that's, it's a kind of, it paralyzes us. But as one of my close colleagues, Jen Cohen, who is a, like, I think the best somatic coach I've ever met or come across, she, she says that fear in movement is courage. Fear in movement is courage. And she said, she said, if you ever ask anybody, you, you see somebody do something incredibly courageous and you say, wow, you were so brave. And they say, no, I wasn't brave. I was absolutely terrified. They were terrified and moving. So I think when you coach someone, if, if, they can, if you have the kind of connection that enables them to talk about their fear um, and you can move it on, um, it helps them to be more courageous. So I think that's, that's the first thing I'd, I'd say. The other thing is, of course, you know, it's a time to, it helps people slow down, pause, reflect. Um, and especially for the leaders, like the leaders I'm working with, they're very much in the, in the game right now. They're in the, in the trenches, like it's short term. It's mm -hmm. um, I got to fix this. And actually, we know that you can't just do that. You have to be longer term or medium term, at least, as well. And when you have a chance to slow down and reflect, you can do two things. You can check that what you're doing is the right thing. Because you can't do that every day. Otherwise, you're in, uh, you're in doubt, right? So you, you're forge ahead with the best information you have. But with coaching, you can step back a moment and say, okay, whoa, should I still forge ahead like this mm -hmm. one? And, and the second thing is, is really to, to think about what were my goals for the medium term and long term, right? A coach, one of the great things about coaching is to remind people of the goals that they had, right? So you, have they changed? Do you still want this? Uh, mm -hmm. wh what else, if, if not this, then, then what else? Um, so I think helping people to hold both short term and long term is, is more important than it's ever been. Uh, in terms of coaching. Um, back to the fear and the connection. Um, I don't think many leaders have a lot of places that they can show vulnerability. Um, and with a good coach, um, you can uh, witness. You know, it's, it, I, I call it immaculate witnessing. So you are able to be with somebody while they express their vulnerability and their uncertainty. And I think, uh, yeah, coaching has never been more useful um, and more needed than mm. for that. And honestly, because, you know, most good coaches, I, th I would say all good coaches have been on their own journey. They have the practices. They come into a coaching session with a very calm nervous system. So, I'm not, when I'm in a coaching session, if, if you're my client, I am not the startled deer, right? So my nervous system can help calm your nervous mm. system. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, I'm going to talk about Nancy Klein, and you'll love this, Daniel, because you adore her too. So Nancy Klein, you know, whose, whose book, time, books, Time to Think, um, she 
she talks so much about that the world would be a better place if people would just think for themselves. And um, I feel like when in a coaching session now, it's more important than ever that we get people back to their strengths, to the, the peace of mind where they can think for themselves, where they're not just reacting. So um, reminding people of their strengths and creating that structure for them to think for themselves, that is as important as it ever was. Yeah. Yeah. No, what I, do you think? Well, You're a master coach. So <laughs> well, I com <laughs> completely agree with that. Um, and I was going to mention that some examples of that I've had recently where in the training we do, hearing back from what um, at the client we both worked with last year, mm -hmm. people that have gone out and practiced their coaching and their coachees are largely C-suite people. Yeah. And they report back that the, the most striking thing to them, because they're, you know, they're early stage of grappling with the grow model and what are the right questions and so on. But what struck them is how valuable has been simply creating the space a confidential supportive and you know compassionate space if you like where the their clients can simply share what's going on for them yeah um, and that's been they've been struck i think by just how important that has seemed and they've been told as much by those both by those practice clients mm. um, and i was just something you you mentioned earlier about about basic awareness I think in, in the in the Whitmore book, he, he says when when all is said and done, coaching is really about two things. One is raising the awareness of the client. And secondly, about supporting them to take appropriate responsibility for things that they, they choose to do. Yeah. Um, and then the Nancy Klein point I'd just echo as well is there's something about until one's heard oneself say out loud to another human being, your connection point it, the idea that might otherwise have been swirling around inside, mm. then it's, then it becomes more real and objectively dealable with, if you will. So yeah. this, this huge power in just the very basic connection, I think with clients. Yeah. You know, um, one of my, one of our dear colleagues, um, Des mm. told, once described coaching to me and it's in the most beautiful way. He's, and I, I'm, I think he's here, so I am. I apologize for if I'm not getting this exactly as beautifully said as you said it. But um, he said that you know when you're um, when you're consulting with somebody, you know you you take the problem and you're both you put it, put it on the table and you both look at the problem. But when you're coaching somebody, they put the problem on the table and look at it, and you look at them. Hmm. And, and I find that such a beautiful way of, um, it, it, it amplifies what you're saying. You're connecting with them so that they can see and take responsibility, but you're, you're not doing it, but you're yeah. enabling yeah, their potential yeah. Yeah. to shine, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got one eye on the clock, but I think we've got time for a couple more questions if that's oh, okay. If that's okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, um, what do you personally do? And I think you may have touched on these, but what do you personally do to pause and deal with the, the kind of anxiety that, that is around us at the moment? I, I'll be upfront. Honestly, the hardest thing for me is to, um, that I've been taken so by surprise by the anxiety I feel from time to time. 
I do a lot of practices and it's still taking me by surprise. There'll be moments when I, I read something or I, or just something happens in the day and it, and I start to cry or, mm. uh, and it's, um, it's like, it takes me by surprise. So I'm, I'm being compassionate about that. And I'm saying, if I have this and I do all these practices, <laughs> what do other people have? Like it's so, so that's the, the first and foremost. So, but on the very, you know, practical level, I do not read more, read or listen to more than 30 minutes of news a day. Um, absolutely not. Mm. I just, uh, I've, I learned early on that it was, it could be obsessive and it wasn't helpful. Um, nature has become more important to me than ever. So I'm, I have a lot of work right now. I mean, as coaching is, uh, big, big now. Uh, I've been, I have more work than ever, although I'm not traveling at all. So in some ways it seems much easier, but it's all over zoom. So mm. I had an off a quote unquote offsite, uh, last week, which a two day offsite turned into two, four hour zoom sessions over two days. But honestly, at the end of those, at the end of the second four hours, I was fried. Mm. I was totally fried. And so I walked, I just went to the park in the middle of the afternoon, which I don't normally do because it's more crowded and I usually go in the morning. But I walked in the park and honestly, within five minutes in the, in the coherent field of trees and water and grass and fields, um, my system calmed down. Uh, my system calmed down. So yeah. I, I'm really using nature um, uh, as I'm connecting with it. It, it's part of my system is part of my support system. Yeah. Um, and I love that because it, I hear birds now. I don't know when I last heard birds and they've been singing, they've been singing, but I just haven't been listening. So that's mm. really, um, I have a very uh, strenuous, <laughs> but pleasant personal care <laughs> routine. I get up every morning. I do yoga for an hour. I meditate for half an hour. And then, by the way, I have a cup of coffee before I start all of that. I just, <laughs> so that, uh, yeah, so I can do it. But I um, also then have breakfast. I have a slow breakfast. Hmm. And then I take a shower and get dressed. And then I'm ready for my day. And honestly, I don't know why I wasn't doing this 10 years ago. Oh. It's awesome. It's <laughs> just so <laughs> great. Um, so that is, I also... Uh, keep asking myself, especially in my meditation, um, can I be quiet enough? Can I be still enough to hear the whisper? I know this is going to sound a bit out there, to hear the whisper of the future. Hmm. I believe we know, but we're just so noisy that we don't listen and we can't hear it. And I, I think, although our bodies crave um, uh, certainty, our bodies crave it. We, we like equilibrium. I mean, our cells like to stabilize. We love stability. Um, our, the human spirit kind of loves uncertainty because mm. everything is possible there. And that I'm trying to live with that and to really explore it. That's what I want to learn. How do I live with um, uncertainty? So I'm asking that. And then I'm, you know what? I do a lot. I do needlepoint because it's very calming and there's nothing to think about. And I'm watching West Wing again. 
<laughs> so that's what I do to stay sane. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, yeah. th there were a couple of questions that, um, which we rehearsed earlier or we, we touched on earlier before the session, Kirsten, but I think you've probably asked, answered them already. They're about the finding things to hope for and be optimistic yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and then if, if I may, just to really pin you down, this is a bit unfair, but if of all the things you described around um, your wellness, you know, your self-care routine, you, is, is there one thing above all others you'd single out or is there, you know, or another way of asking it would be for someone who's maybe thinking of starting something, what would be the smallest thing they could do to make the biggest difference in, in their, in their well-being? Yeah, I think the smallest thing is about starting your day quietly. So not looking at your email, not listening to the news, not rushing to the outside world first, but instead going in first and, and mm. tuning into yourself and setting an intention for the day. So I didn't talk to, about this very much, but it's a core part of my, how I live and how I advise clients or help clients come to uh, that setting in your intention is huge, mm. but you have to be quiet to do that. So even if you take one minute of silence or five minutes of meditation of just getting breathing and noticing your breathing and then ask yourself, what will make this a great day? Mm. And write down the three things that will make this a great day. And that if I do these three things and nothing else, it will still be a great day that would be uh, mm. my minimum, yeah. my minimum requirement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's brilliant. And actually you've just reminded me a, a book I read a while back or some webinar I watched um, talked about the person concerned regarded their day as starting when they went to bed the night before. Beautiful. In other words, it was the, it's the anticipation of a good night's sleep mm. as a basis for what then followed the following day. Um, but I love what you say about the, the intention and uh, it's so easy to wake up and get into the rush of doing instead yeah. of just hanging out and being mm -hmm. for a short while. And I do say that from experience. I am a total doer <laughs> and it has taken me, but that change of the morning, not looking at my email first, not mm. that, that was life changing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, thank you very much indeed for that so far. That's wonderful. Um, I've been focusing so diligently on you. Uh, Full presence. Congratulations. <laughs> I have completely <laughs> unaware of whether there's any questions from anybody. So bear with me for a second while I um, get rid of that. Get rid of that. Um, Alana, I are you you're still there i'm sure so the questions should be in chat okay and i'm seeing the okay so chat i've got yeah I'm, okay i'm there now bear with me right i'm seeing these for the first time so just bear with me while i have a mm -hmm. look um But please, everybody, do put questions into chat if you have a question. Yeah, there are some a number of sort of observations and 
and comments. I mean, there's, a, there's one early on about, um, acknowledging things acknowledging things with calmness and, and women leaders perhaps more able to do this than men which mm. i could certainly empathize with i don't know if you want to comment on that um kirsten the differences between male and female leaders <laughs> <laughs> um you know if I, it's hard to generalize. I mean, and I've been part of a lot of research on, on women leaders in particular, having run um, uh, the Remarkable Women program at McKinsey with colleagues for many, many years. Um, I do think that humility is uh, more prevalent in uh, women than, than men as a, as a top strength, uh, slightly more prevalent. But so it does, it does enable uh, change, faster change. Um, at times, I, that's, I, I think I'll leave it at that. I don't know that women are necessarily better than men uh, right now. Yeah. I really okay. um, and another reflection, I think, on something you said earlier was about, um, and this is maybe something from Brene Brown, apparently, about um, her work on vulnerability. Uh, yes. The suggestion is that vulnerability and courage are opposite sides of the same coin. Beautiful. Um, yeah. And then your, your reference to maybe people putting masks on to give an impression of um, whatever. Strength, uh, I yeah. Um, so the, I think the question is how... So uh, let how, me talk about that. I think yeah. I understood that. Is it right yeah. to put a mask on? And, and I wondered if anybody would pick up on that when I, right after I, mm. the words came out of my mouth. Um, uh, Richard Boyatzis talks about this kind of, what is authenticity? And... Um, so, you know, our, if I'm the leader and I go, haven't calmed myself before I go out, I am the startled deer and everyone gets startled. Hmm. So when I go out, when I calm myself and I put on the mask of calm and I have calmed myself, but there is a very difficult situation. I, I, I've done the work to calm myself. Am I being inauthentic? That's, that's the question. And what he would say and what I have seen from experiences um, is no, you are not being inauthentic. You are sacrificing your immediate reactions to a deeper authenticity, which is that I am here to serve these people. Mm. And so I cannot give in or I cannot respond with my first response of fear or whatever. It doesn't mean that I don't experience fear. Mm. And it, that I can't be compassionate with other people's fear. But it means that I have taken on the responsibility of leadership, which mm. involves sacrifice. Yeah. And it's hard. It doesn't mean that that sacrifice is easy. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, there's, there's reference to um, Barbara Fredrickson's Broaden and Build, which I, yeah. I know you're familiar with as one of the bodies of research. Um, She's particularly, uh, you know, positive psychology is always uh, a, a tricky topic, right? In uh, like appreciative inquiry when things are going badly, you know, like mm. uh, it seems so trite to, 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 to be positive, but that's mm. not what positive psychology means, right? <laughs> so just to be clear, for, that it doesn't mean being positive. It means actually, you know, looking at what's working, looking at your strengths, building on, on what you can 
mm. and what you have and on what has gone well in the past. Yeah. Because okay. you know that works. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an observation about um, cultural differences and some of the things that you speak of or we've spoken about might apply particularly well in Europe or the States perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe question would, would they, would they work quite as well in, in Asia or, 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 you know, other parts of the world? I mean, do you have any thoughts about cultural variation in, um, yeah. So I don't know specifically what, what they mean about what I've said, but, um, you know, I lived in China for a long time and, uh, I studied Chinese and Japanese language. Both my grandparents, uh, Sets of grandparents lived in China. My my father's parents were actually married in in China, in Beijing, and um, so many uh, there are so many differences in culture. Um, there are so many uh, yeah there are so many differences, but when it comes to coaching and connecting. Um, do they matter? Of course they matter. But when I'm working with somebody, uh, when I'm working with a Chinese person, of course I have a background in China, so I, I do understand. I understand some uh, of the culture. Um, I'm still asking them the same kind of questions. Okay, what, what do you feel right now? Mm. I might ask it in a slightly different way. But, you know, kind of who do you, how do you want to behave? What matters to you most now? Mm. Um, what have you done in the past that worked? How could you build on that? What are, you, what are your strengths? And, you know, I would be very fully aware that humility um, and not bragging and, you know, standing out might not be something that um, would be on the table as it might be in a, in a, in a coaching session with, say, an mm. American. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just different, it's different language, but the connection is, is, is the same. Yeah. And here's actually a nice short question, but actually it's quite, quite, um, quite deep in a way. Um, the question is, can ever, can anyone or everybody become a leader or, mm. or some other leadership qualities, sort of something you're born with, wow. you know, innate talent versus nurtured learning, I suppose. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that so i don't really so i'm going to slide across the answer to, to talk about potential mm. um i i and this is my personal belief i believe that we have unlimited potential all of us i think things get in the way of it mm. i mean the family we're born into uh, the circumstances of our education um, uh, our physical health, our mental health. Um, but even within that, I believe that we have potential that is, that can be unlocked. Mm. Sometimes it needs more help than others. Um, can anybody be a leader? I don't know the answer, but I, uh, I think we can get better at leading ourselves mm. for sure. And that that goes away towards helping the rest of the world. Look, um, I believe we can grow. I'm with Carol Dweck. I, I don't believe that we're fixed. I, I mean, there's so much, you know, years of great research showing that we can grow and develop. 
Mm. Um, and that, you know, things are possible and you see that even now. So I suppose if you want to lead, right, <laughs> if you want to lead and you're willing to put the work in, um, yeah, I guess it is possible for anybody. I would say, yeah, if that's what you want, if that's yeah. your potential. Now, am I ever going to, you know, compose music like Mozart, even if I want to? No. I, 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 you know, I didn't grow up in a family of musicians. I don't have the DNA of people mm. who were great musicians. I, I'm not, I don't have a lot of circumstances, but if I really wanted to play a piece of music by Mozart and I got a teacher, I could do it. And I'm, I, I can, mm. so I can tell you that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. Thank you. Um, an acknowledgement from Sarah Horton that she has a big decision coming up uh, where she's torn and um, that the, she liked very much what you said about being still and hearing the voice of the future. Um, Beautiful. Appreciation of your distinction between empathy and compassion. And there's a question which we'll, I'll answer that there's a question is, can, can we direct people to the links on the Buddhist teachings that you've mentioned? And to everyone, we're going to send around a sort of reference, um, slide or information that we part mm. of the thing that Alana circulates. So that's. Um, Can I say something about Sarah's decision? Sure. Sure. She has to make, um, yeah. because I think what I've been considering and meditating on and reading on is um, a lot about, you know, when we have a decision to make and we don't know the answer, and this going to coaching, because we're not, you know, as coaches, we should be non-directive, you know, when it's the answer is not obvious, <laughs> right? We should be non-directive. And because we believe that the answer the person will ha come up with is better than any answer that we as a coach could come up with. There, there's a fundamental belief that it's going to be better for them. I, I've been thinking a lot because also of some teachers I have that we have a kind of internal GPS. And so Sarah, this is, this is for you. And it goes back to the stable core. I think we have an internal GPS and it mostly works. Like we know we'll come to a decision. We know whether we're going to go right or we're going to go left. And in those moments, our internal GPS is working because we're very, we're clear and stable and quiet enough to hear it. Um, when we have a big decision to make and it's not clear and we maybe we need more information but maybe something inside us is blocked that really is the time to get quiet and go back to the state to the stable core what is my purpose what matters most to me what are my priorities who do i love how do i want my life to be whatever you're sure of that helps you with your decision it certainly helps calm the nervous system so that the internal gps can work a little bit better that's all I have to say on that. Great, thank you. And there's a question here about somebody's fascinated by the Japanese letters on the picture behind oh, you. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's, they're Chinese. Oh, okay. Uh, yep, they're Chinese. And what, and and what they, what they it say. It says hope. It says hope. And I had that when I lived in China, I was pregnant with my son, my firstborn, and I went to a market and there was a calligrapher there and I asked him if he would make a calligraphy um, for my unborn child. And he made a calligraphy that says hope. <laughs> uh, those are the characters for hope. Wonderful, thank you. Um, 
and William uh, says, how do you see the balance between core character, sort of DNA and early years, versus building capacity for resilience by practicing behaviours and activities that, as, as you've outlined? Mm. Sort of nat nature versus nurture, I guess, are applied to resilience. What, what do you think? Yeah, well, with the exception, I, I, I want to take out any kind of uh, psychological um, illnesses. So within the range of, of and that, uh, even that, the range of normal mental health, I was going to say, <laughs> even that is um, uh, questionable because sometimes I think, you know, people who are, who are, we say they have mental health difficulties, I sometimes think they're the most sane people. But let's just say within a, within a, a relatively healthy range, I think the core, core traits or core qualities only get you so far. They only get you so far and that you, if you don't do the intentional work to develop what you want, you know, uh, and there's tons of research on, on this uh, and a lot of it by, um, oh my God, the guy who wrote the tip, tipping point, his name has just gone out of my head. Um, Gladwell. Yeah, Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a lot about this. So I refer you to Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, a question from, Kate Woodthorpe, how, how would you help someone to understand what their stable core is mm -hmm. in order to tap into it when, when required? Beautiful. I love that question. So I would start by asking them what their strengths are, how they've exhibited their strengths in the past. I would probably do some strengths, you know, survey and also research, get them to do some research on that. I would ask them what has given them joy in their life. Mm. I would take them back to their childhood to think about what, you know, happy moments, what were they doing, what was around them, what, you know, what, why were they so feeling fulfilled? So I would do a lot around that and currently also what's working. And mm -hmm. I would also go into the future and imagine, you know, 40, 50 years on from now, depending on their age, um, you know, they're at their, their big birthday party. And it's the, it's a magical birthday party where everybody who's important to them in their life, and they may not even be born yet, the people who are there, and mm -hmm. some may be already dead, that they're all there. And that five people stand up and make a toast to you about the contribution you've made, the difference you've made. Um, and you listen to these toasts and you know they're true. Um, and from the a whole series of those kind of conversations, I would, ask, I would ask my client or you to think about, okay, given all of this, what is my purpose? Mm. What really matters to me? Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, this is nice. Um, I don't know if you can see this person <laughs> on the list, but it's from Andy. I'll read it out. It says... Um, read the Brené Brown quote on vulnerability and vulnerability and courage. I keep thinking of the lovely Charlie Mackay line. What's the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help. Said the <laughs> oh, <horse. right. laughs> I love that. So that's, yeah. that's great. I love that. It's so great. Cause it is hard yeah. to ask for help. It's yeah. very hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, there's some nice comments about people being appreciative of what you've shared, Kirsten. Um, but oh, I think you. we've touched on 
every question Brilliant. I've seen. And I'm mindful of the time. And in, uh, yeah. as, as um, I think there were 90 minutes scheduled for this, but we often find is that the sweet spot is about 75 minutes, which, which we're, is right where we are. Which we're coming up to. <laughs> so I, I think um, what I'd like to do is, is draw this to a close and say, Kirsten, thank you so much for being here and sharing sharing your wisdom with us. It's been glorious. Very well, thank you, for be, for, thank you for being my interviewer and well, colleague <laughs> and friend. It's so lovely to have that here. It made it's me a, feel very at ease as well. Great. Thank, thank you, you. It's a pleasure. And thank you again, everyone, for, for listening um, and for posing your questions. Uh, thank you, as always, Alana, for your yeah, behind the scenes, uh, scenes setting up and organizing of everything. And um, yeah, I think um, in the words of someone I know, I think we're done. So <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you on the next one sometime.